Hello and welcome to All Things Urticaria from Medthority. In this series of podcasts, our host, Professor Marcus Maurer, is joined by his friends and colleagues to discuss all things urticaria. Over to Professor Maurer. Hello and welcome back to All Things Urticaria, your UCARE podcast, brought to you from me. Myself, Marcus, here at the UCARE at Charité in Berlin. And today I have with me Sinisha Savage. Hi, Sinisha. Hi. It's great to have you. Um, Sinisha, we want to talk about autoinflammation and um, uh, diseases that look like they could be urticaria but are not. But before we dive in, please let our listeners know a little bit about yourself. You're an expert for many things. One of them is autoinflammation. Where are you and what is your fascination with urticaria? Thanks, Marcus. Thanks really for inviting me to talk. It's one of these uh, 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 podcasts. It's uh, listened to the previous ones. They're real good fun. And I hope we can produce one of the similar entertainment value. Uh, I'm a by background clinical immunologist. I'm based in the UK, in north of England, in a place called Leeds. So I have particular interest in these auto-inflammatory disorders and also have interest in chronic urticaria. And because both of these conditions I like quite a lot, I was trying to find something that is common to both of them and is uh, worthwhile talking about for our colleagues who may come across these conditions in everyday practice. Absolutely. Uh, it is a clinical problem, but it's also quite interesting from a scientific point of view, no matter whether you look at it from a genetic angle or from uh, a biological, immunological angle. Let's start with the clinics, no? because this is how patients find us as their physicians and what they show up with are itchy wheels. I think that's the common denominator in many of these conditions that can be confused with urticaria. No, absolutely. And this is, uh, and in particular, as you mentioned, we now understand a bit more about this condition in terms of the biology and genetics. And it is important to think about these things when patients present to clinic. And itchy-like wheels or urticaria-like outbreaks in the skin are common. But not everything what looks like urticaria is urticaria, as we have <laughs> often found ourselves in, in clinic, finding some time later after we've been looking for some of these patients for many years. And, you know, there are some lessons from the clinic where I've learned uh, a hard way by treating people in a ways that eventually uh, when you realize what's going on and the penny drops and then it becomes much more straightforward. But the main thing to make here is not everything that looks like urticaria is urticaria. And it's important to like look underneath in the skin of what's going on. Uh, what goes through your head? I mean, what are the what are the questions that you ask when you speak with patients to be sure that this is urticaria and not um, caps or Schnitzler or one of the other autoinflammatory diseases? Yeah, I'm just to say I think we can all be forgiven to the degree, given that autoinflammatory diseases are still relatively young group of conditions there's only it's only been 20 years since they've been described so i guess the fact that not all of us have necessarily come across them these in clinic is is uh, uh, something to consider now because a great deal has been discovered in the last decade or so then it's easier to start to think about these conditions earlier in in when the patients present as part of potential differential diagnosis and i think 
particularly the type of the rush that patients uh, complain of, if there is no obvious itch, makes you is this really genuine urticaria that is histamine driven or there's something else going on? Um, also, if there are, if they complain of systemic symptoms, although we have to be a bit here because obviously with urticaria alone, with mast cell degranulation in addition to histamine, there will be all sorts of cytokines that are released and patients often describe feeling generally unwell when they have gen generic systemic urticaria. But with inflammatory disorders, it's really quite evident that patients do feel systemically unwell, possibly describing fevers, maybe night sweats and uh, uh, symptoms like that. Yeah, you make a good point, Sinisha. It, it's uh, this uh, often heterogeneous and wide spectrum of signs and symptoms that the autoinflammatory syndromes come with that gives us a clue. But by no means is it that all urticaria patients are free of extracutaneous signs and symptoms. So um, a bit tricky. Well, how about the lab? How can the lab help us to um, figure out if this is chronic spontaneous urticaria or I'm going to come back to Schnitzler syndrome? Will inflammation markers help us? Yeah, I mean, there are some uh, relatively easy tests we can initially to find out if indeed we may be dealing with auto-inflammatory disorders. So just CRP might be helpful initially to look to see whether or not these um, symptoms are associated with systemic inflammatory response. Of note, of course, elevated CRP as can be found in chronic hertic areas, so it's by, it's by no means <laughs> a differentiating um, uh, 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 test. But uh, when you mentioned Schnitzler syndrome, I think that's a relatively easy one. As part of the diagnostic uh, criterion here, we need to look for evidence of paraprotein. And as part of the diagnostic workup, you would want to ver look very, very hard, actually, for any evidence of paraprotein. And even small amount of paraprotein, which might be hardly visible or highly, hardly quantifiable, may be so things like uh, uh, serum-free light chain, these newer ways of detecting paraprotein may be indeed very helpful. And then if you are really thinking about being potentially an auto-inflammatory disorder, then for obviously the genetic test may be of help. But again, this comes with a caveat, whether or not we're looking for uh, in hereditary forms of auto-inflammatory disorders or these newer acquired uh, conditions that we've come to uh, recognize in the last uh, uh, decade or so. So no one 100% discriminator, really. Uh, you have to take it all um, together to make your picture. What about biopsy? Would that be something that helps? Absolutely. I think that's critical. And this is where, if you're in doubt, uh, biopsy. Uh, and obviously, with auto-inflammatory disorders, we these are conditions which are caused by disturbance of the innate immune system. So it is the cells, affected cells from the innate immune system, such as neutrophils and macrophages, which are the most important in terms of disease pathogenesis. Actually also then revealed when you do a biopsy of these urticaria-like lesions. And there is a now well-recognized entity, which we now call um, neutrophilic urticarial dermatosis, which describes this uh, superficial appearance of a lesion that looks like urticaria, but histologically what that shows is very much a neutrophilic infiltrate 
showing without actually having any vasculitis or oedema, which distinguishes it from from urticaria or urticarial vasculitis. And if you and this is a common uh, entity across various auto-inflammatory disorders, and it will be seen in cups, will be seen in schnitzlers, will be seen in adult stills disease. So if you do find this on the biopsy, then you're almost there in terms of making the diagnosis. All right. So ask the right questions, do the right tests, take a biopsy, and genetics. And then you have a clear, clearer picture um, uh, to start your treatment, because that's really what it's all about. You know, the problem is that patients with these auto-inflammatory uh, disorders do not respond, by and large, to the treatments that work in chronic spontaneous urticaria and vice versa. No critical role of interleukin-1 in auto-inflammatory disorders. Can this still stand or have we advanced from that? Well, I think for a subgroup, certainly, I think there are a number of conditions which are very much IL-1 driven. And the beautiful part, bit about these disorders, in a way, similarly, when we finally got omalizumab for urticaria and it makes, made the treatment of urticaria so, so rewarding, I think it's important also to say treating these conditions when you recognize them is really rewarding because IL-1 blockade works extremely well. These patients have their lives transformed very quickly after you initiate the therapy. And for example, again, going back to Schnitzel syndrome, whatever type of IL-1 be tenakinra, kenakinumab, relanocept, all of these work extremely well. And it's really, really satisfying to, to be able and privileged really to, to treat these patients in a very effective way. But the world of auto-inflammation has moved on. There are numbers, number of other conditions which don't assert on to IL-1. I in particular like actually the condition your group described, which is factor 12, uh, uh, called, uh, uh, familial called associated syndrome which strangely enough responds to bradykinin uh, inhibitor. So you, you, you always, uh, you know, the surprises in this field <laughs> are never are never too far away. So that was really a neat and an interesting uh, condition that uh, obviously always brings more questions sometimes than answers. And opportunities. Now, if you think about our ever-growing network of urticaria centers of reference and excellence, you know, we're magnets for patients with difficult-to-treat disease, often um, mistaken for urticaria and treatment-resistant because it is not urticaria. And it's our job and also our chance to then identify the true underlying pathology and collect these cases, help these patients outside of our standard urticaria treatment. And I, I, I really want to thank you for um, the help that you're giving to the network uh, with your genetic analyses. It, that's just fantastic because um, these analyses that you do in Leeds are not available to uh, all of us for sure. No? And uh, it's great what you can do these days. Thanks, Marcus. I mean, absolutely. I think this is the way forward, at least for subgroup of patients. I mean, the more we do these sorts of investigations, the more we learn. Uh, there's always surprises. What's particularly quite interesting, I guess, is the acquired forms of these conditions. And obviously, you mentioned uh, CUPS, which is you know the range of conditions that are due to mutation in this 
gene called NLRP3, which is important for production of IL-1 beta. But what we have learned in the last several years that you can get these mutations even as you, uh, um, in, uh, in adulthood. So these are acquired within the bone marrow. They affect a proportion of cells and actually can uh, cause a condition which is clinically indistinguishable from hereditary form. So even if you only have a small proportion of cells that carry the mutation, as long as that mutation is in the right compartment of cells, so for example, largely neutrophils, you get the condition which looks, smells, behaves, and responds <laughs> to treatment same as hereditary form, yeah, yeah. which is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, Tinisha, where do you stand on the role of mast cells in auto-inflammatory syndromes? Now, it has been speculated that interleukin-1, of course, as a major driver, comes from mast cells. Others have uh, argued this. What is your take on the role of mast cells? It's your favorite cell, Marcus, and of course, we need to, uh, you know, include them in, into this discussion. And there are a couple of interesting uh, studies which were done in the past trying to address partly this question. There is a study which was published in 2009 where they were looking for evidence of NLRP3 inflammasome uh, activation within the mast cells. So they were, you know, you can find NLRP3 inflammasome in mast cells. You can certainly activate it in mast cells. And in patients with CUPS, mast cells seem to be able to produce IL-1 spontaneously. And that original study, what they've done also, they've done adoptive transfer experiments where they've moved mast cells from the patients into skin of the mice and shown that these mast cells can produce IL-1, attract the neutrophils and replicate the clinical features consistent with CAPS. But there was a recent study, again, where another animal model was used where mice were engineered in such a way that the mutations were only present in uh, neutrophils and in that mouse model, so we are talking only neutrophil carrying cells carrying the mutation. And in that mouse model, all the clinical features, including skin manifestations, were again fully replicated. So it's a really fascinating area. What interests me more, I think, in terms of uh, role of mouse cells and IL-1 in other patients with chronic urticaria, because obviously, you know, the ones who don't respond to melizumab, the ones who don't respond to where we, uh, you know, there is a subgroup that don't seem to respond to anything really well. Is there a subgroup where mass IL-1 produced by mast cells might be more important? There are case reports of patients responding to anti-TNF and other biological agents, and I wonder whether there is a subgroup where IL-1 in chronic urticaria area may be actually more important. Very nice speculations, Inisha. Yes, uh, I agree. We need to learn more about the pathogenesis of chronic spontaneous urticaria and the drivers in subpopulations. So we're beginning to understand the endotypes, but we still have a long way to go, and we should not, not, not um, uh, overlook the possible contribution of old players. I'm making air quotes here, if you could see me, uh, like interleukin-1. Back to the clinic. And, you know, we recently heard from a couple of um, uh, studies just how long it takes for patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria to get the correct diagnosis. And I, I want our listeners from now on to see this from two ways. No, patients coming 
to see a physician uh, already diagnosed with whatever, but uh, it is the wrong diagnosis, in fact, and they have chronic spontaneous urticaria and um, were not diagnosed correctly. Uh, the other scenario we talked about today, and that is patients running with a diagnosis of chronic spontaneous urticaria when in fact they have autoinflammation. And uh, I think both scenarios are equally troublesome for patients, but given the high burden of chronic spontaneous urticaria, but also of autoinflammatory syndromes in terms of impact on their quality of life and uh, pain, and you know, these are not, not at all fun diseases to have, just like urticaria. If you run with the wrong diagnosis, this can really, really mess things up. Yeah, completely. I mean, I agree 100% with everything what you just said. And it is important that patients are directed to the right places where they can be seen, investigated, and offered the right treatments. I think sometimes what's also maybe important to stress, even when we don't know for sure 100% what's going on, an empirical trial of treatment is something that often is very informative, actually. And I've done that quite a few times where using interleukin-1 blockade in one form or the other was really informative in terms of trying to understand what's going on in some patients. Uh, most of these therapies are quite safe and we know that if we are on the right track very quickly, so empirical trial of treatments in, in the specialist centers can really be helpful in terms of teasing out what's going on and who's got what. And sometimes even before we knew what the problem was with some of these cases, you know, we got diagnosed years later, they were effectively treated with, yeah. with, in, in treatments that we didn't know how they worked. How would you spend that million? Thank you for offering a million. <laughs> uh, I mean, it would be great. I think uh, you alluded to this previously, you know, my love for genetics. And I think being able to rapidly genotype patients as they come to clinic would be really helpful, I think. We can learn huge amounts these days from genetics, and the more we do this, with the better. And, and having very tight clinical phenotype associated with uh, genetic investigations would certainly help to inform how we treat some of these patients. Well, it's also lacking, and probably less. There are some biomarkers coming. So, for example, we can now look for uh, com components of inflammasome being evident in the serum of patients who have these auto-inflammatory uh, disorders. So, for example, my lab is able to measure some of these uh, components uh, rather, rather routinely. And again, uh, in introducing this more widely, it would be interesting to, to see how that performs in a wider clinic, and particularly if there is a subgroup of patients with chronic urticaria, which we never uh, um, thought may have an IL-1 signal, turns out that they do and in, you know informs of a treatment later on very good i love that uh, and again the fact that you offer your collaboration to the entire u care network is very very much appreciated um, we have to work as a network to increase uh, our rates of diagnosing patients with autoinflammatory syndromes and diagnose them early. That is a key point, the delay in diagnosis, the rate of misdiagnosis is still way too high. So let's work together as a network with you 
Sinisha, on improving the diagnosis and thereby care patients with auto-inflammatory syndromes. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was fascinating to learn from you. Thank you, Marcus. And I really, you know, I enjoyed this uh, chat with you and hopefully we'll, as you say, it's important we work together on improving the diagnosis of these conditions. Medthority would like to thank Marcus Maurer for that fascinating insight into UCARE. If you have any other questions regarding urticaria, please feel free to ask us via our website, www.medthority.com. Remember to tune in for the next episode of All Things Urticaria. From all of us at All Things Urticaria from Medthority, have a lovely week.